So Naaman went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to Elisha's instruction, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was cleansed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to have you all with us today. Uh, there's much to discuss in the life of our church. So the, this morning's sor- sermon is going to be uh, Sorman. I don't know where that came from. Swordman. This morning's Swordman is going to come out of the back, and you're going to have to defend yourself. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> this morning's sermon is going to be brief. I know you're probably sitting there going, promises, promises. When has one of your sermons ever been brief? Uh, because there's a lot for us to discuss at the end of the service about what the next uh, several months uh, in the life of our church are going to look like and what the Lord is doing uh, in our midst. But this morning, we're going to focus on our Old Testament lesson. This is a great story, 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, I would encourage you uh, to read it on your own. If you have small children, to read it to them. Uh, a wonderful and engaging story where people can see uh, the faithfulness of God uh, and the healing power, ultimately, that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pull out two things as pertains to uh, the moral interpretation of the text. So that, that's not moralism or necessarily ethics, but uh, the question, how should we then live? What are the takeaways for us? And then uh, the third is going to be, the third point is going to be, uh, how does this point to Jesus Christ? Because uh, you've heard me say this and say this over again until I'm red in the face, that all of Scripture is about Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then uh, at the end, I'm going to just leave you with a question, leave you uh, hanging a little bit of theological speculation so you can walk out the door uh, unsatisfied in that way. There we go. So, so first we see uh, this Israelite maiden that she loves her enemy. Second Kings 5.2 and following the Syrians had gone out on raids. So in our text, that's the Hebrew name for the Syrians, the Arameans. Those are Syrians. And the northern kingdom of Israel. So by this point, when Elisha's prophesying, the, the, the Davidic monarchy did not last long. One generation after David, Solomon. Then it split. So these are the northern tribes of Israel. Their king at the time is Joram. So they're, they're going on raids, maybe sort of like we think of when we watch Vikings or something, and they take this young Israelite girl captive, and and she was waiting on Naaman's uh, wife, Naaman being this powerful uh, commander in the army, this man of prestige, and he had leprosy, this degenerative skin disease, which would ostracize you uh, from any society. And she says to her, uh, to her, to Naaman's wife, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. I mean, think about this. I mean, this is really, I think, remarkable and something we can kind of gloss over so quickly. This young girl was taken from her home. She was enslaved and made to serve her enemies. And who would blame her? Would you blame her? Would anyone blame her if she had just spent all her time praying imprecatory psalms against the Syrians? God, come down and smite 
our enemies, the enemies of the people of God. Or if she had interpreted, interpreted Naaman's suffering as God's judgment. Well, that's what you deserve. You've been aggressive. The Syrians have shown aggression towards the people of God. And you need to repent. And then maybe God will spare you. She doesn't do any of that. But she has mercy on her captors. She tells Naaman's wife of a true prophet of the true God in whom there is healing. She embodies, she lives out, as it were, what it means to love your enemies. And this is as an aside, this is a young girl. This is a wonderful example of what God can do in and through the young. We have to make sure that our expectations for the young, our expectations, even those of us who have young children, are not at the basement, that we don't keep them in waiting, but that we're actually ready to disciple the young according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that God can take the young and use the young in mighty and incredible ways. Because age is irrelevant. We see this all throughout scripture, all throughout human history. God using people that are very, very young and God using people that are very, very old. There's no, those of us who are getting up in years, there's no retirement in the kingdom of God. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. Moses was 80 years old before God did the thing in and through him that he was made to do. So number one, we see that the Israelite maiden loves her enemies. Number two uh, is, I'll call it, problem and opportunity. And we see this in 2 Kings 5.8. Naaman and the king of Syria... They heed the counsel of the young girl. They're like, okay, we'll send Naaman over to the prophet in Israel. And a company is sent off, and they they bring a large gift. The text tells us a lot of gold, a lot of silver, uh, a new wardrobe from J. Crew, maybe 10 Lacoste poles. I don't know. The text doesn't say. And they send this letter. And the letter is kind of funny, and you can see why it, it ticks the king of Israel off. Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I am sending Naaman, my servant, to you, so that you may heal him of his leprosy. It's a bit presumptuous, to say the least. Well, the king of Israel, as we read in the text, this was Joram, did not like this letter. And again, it's understandable, and he thinks that it's this pretext for war. He's like, this guy's setting me up. So you could see how... He could think this because it's like, okay, you guys are basically a healing factory over in Israel. I'm sending you someone really important, Naaman. I'm sending you a lot of money and stuff. If He's going to kind of spin this as a snub. Can you believe that? Can you believe what they did? They're healing people. We sent them Naaman. You guys love Naaman, right? Man of honor. We sent them all this money. We sent them a new wardrobe, and they didn't heal them. Let's go. Let's go take care of those guys. So, so he's worried that this guy is trying to goad me into something. So the king of Israel sees this as a problem. He sees this as a problem, but the prophet Elisha sees it as an opportunity. 
he too sends a letter to the king of Israel. And he says, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So things happen, and the king of Israel, he sees, oh man, this is going to be bad. And Elisha sees it as, you know what, God could use this. As we read through the text, we see that is exactly what happens, that God uses it. How does this point to Jesus and his work? The king of Israel is not the only one who gets upset in this story. There's no shortage of rage in this text. I'll just read you verses 9 and 11 again. It says, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. So he's got his entourage. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Here's the rage. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me. And Elisha doesn't even come out. He sends him a text telling him what to do, essentially. They had texting back then? No, it was a joke. There we go. He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Couldn't I wash in those other rivers? No, no, you can't. You see, the Jordan River is significant in Holy Scripture. I mean, go do a Bible Gateway search and just see all the different places the Jordan River comes up. That's a website, by the way. Makes your Bible study a little bit uh, easier. Uh, Israel, of course, crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Fast forward, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. So on the Christological level of how does this story, how does this account, not a story like a fairy tale, like once upon a time, like this didn't happen, but how does this account, this real event of Naaman's healing from leprosy point to the person and work of Jesus. Well, this whole story points to the salvation that is found in Christ, to his precious blood that washes away the sickness of sin, to the font of baptism wherein we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. St. Irenaeus writes this. He says, It was not for nothing that Naaman of old, when suffering from leprosy, was purified upon his being baptized, but it serves as an indication to us. For as we are lepers in sin, we are made clean by the means of the sacred water and the invocation of the Lord. The Jordan points us to the work 
of new exodus. The work of us who were in slavery, like Israel, to sin and to death and to Satan. How we were freed from that slavery by the precious blood of the perfect spotless lamb of God. How we went through the waters to new life and to new creation. Can I not wash in the other rivers? No, no you can't. Because the only source of forgiveness and healing is found in Jesus Christ. It's not found anywhere else. His precious blood which washes over us at the beginning of the Christian life in baptism. His precious blood which we receive in the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. It's an, that is the font. That is the source it is found in Jesus. Do you remember uh, the old chorus? I do. I grew up, as you guys know, in the Baptist church, and we sang it all the time. Do you remember the old chorus, Nothing But the Blood? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the only river that we can wash in that makes us whole. Naaman, like the Samaritan in the gospel, is not only healed physically, but spiritually. I mean, our gospel tells us that all the lepers, as they went to go show themselves to the priests so that they could be re reintegrated into society, reintegrated into the people of God. They were all healed physically, but only one went back and was healed spiritually. Otherwise, Jesus' statement to the leper doesn't make any sense because he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. He was already well physically. But his faith in Christ had made him whole. Naaman and the Samaritan are healed in mind, body, and soul. And after he is healed, he comes before Elisha with all his entourage and says, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And then he tries to give Elisha a gift. Not a bad thing to do. He basically an honorarium. Which Elisha refuses. And then this is outside of our pericope today, but this is remarkable. Then Naaman says, okay, if not, please let your servant. And I'll stop right there. Look at the transformation just in attitude that he had come to Israel for healing, and he wanted this big pomp and circumstance, this something of show to accompany that healing. And he was ticked. 
that Elisha didn't even have the decency to come out and, and see this great man. And now he's saying to Elijah, if not, please let your servant. He's humbled himself. This great commander of the army, this nobleman, now sees himself as the servant of God's servant, Elisha. He says, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. King Joram, it's not a problem. This is an opportunity so that people can know there's a prophet in Israel, that the true God is in Israel. And look at Naaman's transformation. He's like, all right, at least give me stuff so that I can sacrifice to the one true living God. Now the real ending. My sermons are kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book. You never know where you're going to end up. I've sometimes, I, I've thought about this story over, over the years, and I've wondered about the healing of Naaman. And his dipping seven times in the Jordan. And I've wondered, was this a progressive healing? Meaning, did each time he dipped, skin got a little bit better. So he goes down one time, okay, a little bit better than twice, then third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh. So was it progressive? Or was it all at once? He goes down once, not looking any better. Twice, not looking any better. Two, three, four, five, six. I don't know if this is going to work. Then he goes down that final time. And then he comes up clean. Now, ultimately, I don't think this question matters for our understanding of the text or its witness to, to Jesus Christ, the healing path power of the cross, this holy sacrament of baptism. But I have found, and others have a well, that oftentimes when you're trusting in the Lord, when you're stepping out, when you're doing something, whether that's as a church, in your personal life, you're taking a step out in your vocation, your job, something in your family, when you're doing something that the Lord has called you to do, maybe something that doesn't make a lot of sense to you. It didn't make a lot of sense to Naaman what he was being asked to do. I have found that God often waits to the last dip, to the 11th hour, to come through. But, he always comes through. Whatever the Lord is calling you to do, maybe it's, it's not even a, a big mystery of discernment. Because God is calling all of us to become like Jesus, to become more like Jesus. And maybe there's a step in your life of 
of, of growing in your prayer life or just, or just growing in obedience or taking a stand on something that's been grating your conscience and trusting and knowing that when you step out in faith and you simply just know that our Father is a good Father and that whatever He's calling you to do, it is for your good and for His glory, He will come through. And it's a scary place to be. It is. But there's no better place to be than just simply walking in trust and, and living in such a way as individuals, as families, as a church, that if God, if, if you don't come through, we're sunk. But I'm still going to step out. <laughs>